Father, what, what mercy. We rejoice this morning that we don't need to measure up to approach your throne with confidence. All of us, Jew and Gentile alike, can put our confidence squarely in Christ's righteousness and his obedience and his death and resurrection in our place. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come, you strengthen us through the preaching of the word, both the preacher and those who sit under the preaching, would you help our hearts to come in alignment with your truth? Would you strengthen us as you do week after week after week? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The world around us tends to gather in groups based on sameness. Stage of life, shared interests, political opinions, etc. Our tribe is a safe place to live in because, or mainly because, of that sameness. It's familiar to us and it feels safe. The church, on the other hand, gathers despite our often substantial differences. And that fact confounds the world. Think about in this room the endless list of differences between us. Young and old, rich and poor, male and female, various skin colors and countries of origin and physical abilities. Endless interests and backgrounds are represented here. Different political opinions about matters that the Bible isn't clear about. And yet here we are, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we gather in this place to joyfully worship our King and to fellowship with one another, to strengthen one another in the King's promises until He comes. And we experience in the middle of all those differences, life together as a family. There's a deep connection between Christians that we can't always understand, but we can't deny either. You've probably had the experiences of meeting someone you've never met before, but before long you realize they're a Christian and there is a deep familial bond that you can't explain with this person who was a few minutes ago a stranger to you. There's a powerful video that Keith and Kristen Getty released last year, and in the video they're singing, He Will Hold Me Fast. And in the first verse, a Ukrainian young woman sings in Ukrainian, and in the second verse, a young Russian woman sings in Russian. And then in the third verse, the whole band on the platform sings together in English. And it's not lost on any Christian as we watch this. We immediately feel the truth that there is a deeper bond in Christ than anything else in this world. Their countries may be at war, but the bonds of Christ will far outlast those distinctions. So far in Ephesians, Paul has been focused on the vertical relationship. It's been dominated by the vertical peace we have with God through Christ. Now, Paul switches orientations. He's now mainly focused on a horizontal orientation, how the gospel not only reconciles us to God, but reconciles us to one another in the church. He's going to be focused mainly here about the gospel's power to unify Jew and Gentile, and then turns them into one new gathering, 
all as a fulfillment of a promise that God makes more than a thousand years earlier. The main idea this morning is that our love for one another proclaims the gospel's power. Our committed love for one another proclaims the unifying power of the gospel as it gathers us in all our differences together because of this one main thing we hold in common. Our unity as His people proclaims the gospel's power not just to unite us with one another, but more importantly, to unite us to God Himself. Now, this passage is theologically thick. It's very theologically thick, but it's also gloriously rewarding. So you're going to need to dig in with me this morning, and you're going to need to hang on, and I think you'll be rewarded in the end. Our past alienation, verses 11 through 12. Paul timestamps this in verse 11 and in verse 12 by saying, at one time. At one time. In the past, you were alienated from God. Gentiles is just New Testament shorthand for non-Jews, all people other than the Jewish people. And at this point, Paul focuses in the letter on those Gentiles, Christians, living in the city of Ephesus to which he's writing. But the Jewish Christians who are also part of this church are also listening into this letter. And Paul wants them to remember Remember is the first command in this letter and the only command in the first three chapters of Ephesians. What does Paul want the Ephesians to remember? Of all things, circumcision. Look at verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh in human hands. God gave circumcision as a visible sign distinguishing Israelite males from Gentile males. This is Genesis 17, God's promise and covenant with Abraham. Circumcision is a physical sign that indicated that this particular person was a part of a people who trusted God's covenant promises. At one time, Paul says, You Gentiles in Ephesus, you were Gentiles in the flesh. You were Gentiles in your uncircumcision. You lack the covenant sign. It's a bit confusing in the ESV, but that's what he's saying. You were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision, by the Jews. Now, this wasn't supposed to be a point of racial pride or purity because those non-Jews who wanted to believe in the covenant promises as well could likewise be circumcised and be part of God's covenant people. But Paul says that you were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision, by the Jews. And it was derogatory and disdainful. And Paul pushes back against that. But it flowed both directions. The historian Josephus said that most Romans and Greeks thought that this particular surgical procedure was abhorrent, and they would often laugh at Jewish men. And so as Jews and Gentiles started to be united and bonded together in this new thing, the church, this issue was bound to tempt them toward division. Gentiles would be despised for lacking the former covenant sign. Jews for submitting to an abhorrent practice according to the Gentiles of the day. And Paul reminds both groups that circumcision is, you can insert, merely 
a surgical procedure made in the flesh with human hands. That's all it is at the end of the day. Something better is coming. But still, circumcision reminds the church of its past alienation and estrangement. Look at verse 12. Remember that at you were at that time, he timestamps it again, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope and without God in the world. This is very similar to what he began chapter 2 with, talking about how we were separated from Christ. Paul says, Gentiles in Ephesus, remember your situation before God saved you. Remember what it was like before God saved you. In the first place, you were without Christ. This is a huge deal. All of the gospel promises that can come to us flow through Christ. Our union with Him brings all of these true things to us. And Paul says, you were at that time without Christ. You therefore remain dead in your sins and disobedient along with the world and deceived by our enemy Satan and destined for wrath. Without Christ, we will forever drown in the ocean of our sins without ever finally dying. That ocean of sins becomes an unquenchable fire. You were without Christ. But also you were excluded from the nation of Israel. You were separated at that time from God's chosen people. You were non-participants in all of those privileges that Israel enjoyed as his covenant people. Because God was at work through Abraham's descendants. In the Old Testament, you have two groups of people. You have the Jews and you have the non-Jews, the Gentiles. That's it. You have the Jews and those who were not Jewish. And in Romans 9, verse 4, Paul writes that they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To Israel belongs the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And Paul wants the Gentiles in Ephesus to know that at one time you were excluded from all of those precious privileges of being a part of God's people. You were excluded from the nation of Israel. And there you were also strangers to God's covenant promises. For 2,000 years, God's people Israel could hold on to those promises, could trust them, could anticipate God's fulfillment of His Word. For 2,000 years, they could hold on to these things. But the Gentiles on the whole knew nothing of God's covenant promises. They were in the dark. They knew nothing of them. They were strangers to God's covenant promises. And they were also, and finally, you were without hope and without God in the world. Without Christ, there is no hope. There is no good shepherd to lead beside still waters. When there is a heap of trouble, there is no refuge. God is not a present help. He provides no strength. And when you sit in darkness... He is not a light to you. And when the time comes and you fade into death, there is no joyous welcome, only judgment. You are without hope and you are without God in the world. This is the hard news. This is akin to Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And not just to Gentiles in Ephesus, but to all of us. We were orphans without a spiritual father. We were disconnected from God in the world. And perhaps this is true of some of you this morning. Without Christ... 
without hope, without God, disconnected from God's faithful promises. I want you to come to your true peace this morning. That's where Paul turns next, from our past alienation to our present peace. He timestamps it again in verse 13 by saying, but now, similar to but God in Ephesians chapter 4, but now you who were alienated now have Jesus as your present peace. God was not content to leave his people disconnected from him. Those whom he had foreknown before the foundations of the earth would come to him. He was not content with us being disconnected. The word peace is used four times in these five verses. God's people, Jew and Gentile, are brought near to God and to each other as one united family. He does this in the first place by bringing us near by his blood. How is Jesus our peace? He brings us near by his blood. This is verses 13 and 14. This is about the satisfaction of God's just wrath through the death of Christ. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You can underline that verse. It's the main verse in this section, 11 to 22. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by Christ's blood. And then look at verse 14. How is this true? For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus is our peace. Jesus himself is the means by which we have peace with God, vertical peace with God. More on that soon. But the concern now for Paul is also the horizontal peace in the church, particularly in his context between Jew and Gentile Christians. Now, how is Jesus our peace? In what way is Jesus our peace? In verse 14, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Lean in with me here. What happened to Jesus' flesh? He came in the flesh. He was rejected in the flesh. He was flogged and crucified and killed in the flesh. And in his suffering, he sheds his blood for his people. And in doing so, the dividing wall of hostility that alienated God's people from one another, not just between us and God, but also between one another, it's been broken down. The hostility between us is broken down. And now we who were far off, we who were Gentiles, who were far off from God's promises, are brought near. Not through our torn flesh, not through physical circumcision, but through Christ's torn flesh. And the result of Christ's torn flesh is one new people. No longer two, but one. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working itself through love. Now, I forgot my laser pointer, so this is going to be difficult. Okay? Okay, if you can see letter E on the screen which I understand you can't, but I can't get my laser pointer either. It's the, it's the court of the Gentiles. If anybody has a laser pointer, now is a great time to use it. <laughs> it's the court of the Gentiles. It's the big area around the outside of that middle structure. It's the temple of, it's the court of the Gentiles. 
Now, here's what Paul could have had in mind. The image that he could have raised for us is this. There is a a wall, a knee-high lattice wall that you certainly can't see that divides the temple, the court of the Gentiles from everywhere else inside where the Jews could come. Paul may have in mind this particular wall of hostility coming down because of what Christ has accomplished, making it therefore possible for Gentiles who were excluded from coming into the center of the temple to now come together, Jew and Gentile, as one worshiping people. It's a tremendous image. But not only did Jesus bring us near and invite us from the outside court of the Gentiles into God's presence, but He's creating one new body. And He does that by abolishing the law. We need to lean in again together here. We need to work here because understanding the role of the law in the life of the church is one of the hardest things for us to navigate. Look at verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Notice how Paul is stretching with language over and over again to help us feel the weight. The, The stretch is that we are coming together as one new man, and it happens through Jesus' death. He brings us together. Paul writes here that Jesus abolishes the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What does he mean? There are aspects of the law that are ethical and moral. Think Ten Commandments. They tell us what is good in God's sight all the time. Here's who I am. Here's what I find good and righteous. And these things are true all the time throughout history. They're always That's always true. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes time to expand the Ten Commandments and actually make them harder for us to obey, inviting us to instead trust in Him. But, so there are moral and ethical parts of the law. There are other aspects of the law that teach God's people, God's sinful people, how they live near a holy God. Those aspects of the law, sacrifices, ceremonies, food restrictions, circumcision. These things aren't bad. It's just that the law couldn't save human beings. That the law, those things, could not provide full, bold, confident access between a sinful people and a holy God. Sinclair Ferguson observes that we should think of this aspect of the law like a temporary scaffolding. A temporary scaffolding that is erected for a time. These distinctions were erected and helpful for a season, but now that Christ is here, there is no longer a need for the temporary scaffolding. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, that He came to fulfill the law. And so the abolishing of the law and the fulfillment of the law are one in the same. He's fulfilling it for us. It's through Jesus' obedience to the law and his death in the place of lawbreakers that Jesus fulfills the law. It's through his obedience to the law in our place, his death in in the place of us, lawbreakers, that Jesus fulfills the law. Here's Romans 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Or Romans 2.28. For no one is a Jew 
who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Right? There's something different that Paul is seeing now. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision, it's a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. We're moving to a new kind of distinction, from physical outward distinction to this inward distinction of the heart, a circumcision not done by hands, but done by the Spirit. By fulfilling the law, Jesus made unnecessary commands about Jew-Gentile separation. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus creates in himself one new man in place of the two, therefore making peace. In other words, he tears down the scaffolding, the circumcision, the food laws, the holy days. These aren't necessary or vital any longer. It's not to say they're bad. It's to say they aren't necessary or vital any longer. And therefore, I think we see in 1 Corinthians that they become a matter of conscience to the person rather than requirement to people. Here's the big difference. In the Old Testament, the distinction was between Israel and the rest of the nations. God wanted Israel to live distinctly. He wanted to live with them so that all the nations around them could say, that's different. Israel was basically saying, come and see what it's like to be in relationship with God. That was the Old Testament. Now in Christ, the distinction is not between Israel and the nations. It is between this all nations church and the world in which the church lives. The distinction changes. The emphasis changes. It doesn't make what came before bad. All of our heroes of the faith were Jews who were circumcised and trusted God. We thank God for that foundation. And now they and all Jews who trust Christ and all Gentiles who trust Christ are together in one body. And we are distinct, not because of something physical on the outside, but because of what the Spirit has done on the inside. This mysterious circumcision, which is no longer just for males, but for male and female alike. This is an amazing promise fulfillment, exactly what God promised to Abraham a thousand years before, or two thousand years before. Here's Galatians 3, 3, 7, and 8. Know then, you should jot this down, Galatians 3, 7, and 8. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. This is incredible. God knew exactly what he was doing 2,000 years before. He preached the gospel to Abraham saying, In you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith, Jew and Gentile, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you see the strength of this? Jew and Gentile gathered together into one family because of faith in Christ. One more thing Jesus does to provide peace. In verses 17 and 18, he provides access in one spirit to the Father. Another Trinitarian statement. Jesus, the Son, provides access to the Father in the Spirit. Look at verses 17 and 18. 
And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. There's no reason for Gentiles to look down their nose upon Jews. He came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. You were physical descendants of Abraham. You were participants in the covenant promises. You were near to God. Gentiles, you were far from God. And Jesus came and preached peace to both groups. Why did he come and preach peace to both groups? For through Christ... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus says it's in me that true, bold, everlasting access to the Father can be yours. It's only through me. And so he preached peace to both groups because both groups, Jew and Gentile, needed to come to God through Jesus in the spirit. There is no other way. It is only through Jesus. And the fact that the Jewish people were nearer to God by virtue of their being physical descendants of Abraham and the people who received the law, they still needed God through Christ in the Spirit. And that peace with God would not come through law-keeping. It would not come through observance of the food laws or the sacrificial system or the holy days. It would come through Christ in the power of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus kicks down the scaffolding and he stands atop the rubble and he says, I am the peace. I am the way you access God. Jew and Gentile, you come through me to him and you are therefore reconciled to one another. Jew and Gentile, peace with God through the Spirit's power. Romans 3.28 For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We are justified. We are declared righteous by faith apart from the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? This is glorious theology. Jesus provides access through the Spirit to the Father. You don't have to work for it. You can't earn it. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to observe the law perfectly. You don't have to hide in the darkness of your shame. Come into the light. The gospel has the power to gather and unite remarkably different people, male and female, young and old. The gospel spans national boundaries. It summons rich and poor. And as the gospel does this, It proclaims the unifying reach and power of Christ. And it tells of the reconciliation that's possible, not just horizontally, but vertically with God. Come to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. In verses 19 to 22, Paul timestamps it again and says, so then. At that time, you were alienated, but now you have peace. So then, what do we do? Our glorious calling in verses 19 through 22. He tells them to remember, but why should they remember? Because of this glorious calling. Remember when you're tempted to divisions that you were once far off, but you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are one, so act like one. Fulfill your glorious calling. And he gives them three images and gives us three images 
to help us understand this glorious calling. First, we are God's people. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and, the mem- and members of the household of God. We're no longer foreigners and strangers with no rights or benefits in the land we're traveling through, but we are fellow citizens with the saints. In other words, neither of you, Jew or Gentile, are second-class citizens. We're not observing from the side God's work among the other. Gentile Christians now have a homeland as fellow citizens with Christian Jews in God's heavenly kingdom. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven, all of us. And from heaven we await a savior. But not only are you God's people, you are God's household. Look at verse 20. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Gentile Christians, you are not just citizens in God's kingdom. More than that, you are family members. You are part of his household. There are no Cinderella's with God. You are brought into the family. You are ushered in. You are made part of the household. You are children alongside the believing Jews. The prodigal son, when he comes home, He only wants to be a hired hand. It's not going to happen. He's returned to sonship. God will provide for you and protect you. He will tenderly care for you and meet your needs. You belong to him. You are part of his household. And this household, Paul says, is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, of the apostles and the prophets. It's a specific foundation. By apostles, I'm pretty sure Paul has in mind the 12 plus Paul plus a few others who mainly write the New Testament. By prophets, I think Paul has in mind the Old Testament prophets who hear from God, who write the scriptures, but he could also have in mind New Testament prophets who are working alongside the apostles. But here's the point. There's a specific foundation that we are built upon, and that foundation of the apostles and the prophets has Jesus as its cornerstone. Because if you reject Jesus as the cornerstone, I don't care who you are, Jew or Gentile, you are building on a foundation of sand. This is the foundation, Christ alone. That's what the prophets predicted, and that's who the apostles proclaimed, Christ alone. Not only are we his household, but we are his temple. We end in verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Stone by stone, people group by people group, Christians are being added to this temple. Notice how many times he uses a phrase to help us see that we are growing. It's not static, it's growing, it's moving to the ends of the earth. If Israel's call was live differently so that the nations can come and see what I'm like. The call to the church is to go and tell the nations what I'm like. It's a growing temple that grows as we go and as we proclaim him. And we do that in unity. And this temple is not only growing, the temple serves a purpose. God's presence by his spirit is living inside God's people. The church is glorious because of God's presence, his spirit living inside of us. Let me read from Ezekiel chapter 43. Here's what it looked like for God's glory to fill the Old Testament temple. 
Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit of God lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The church limps with sin, but the church is glorious because of the Spirit's presence in our midst. Praise God. There is a role that we have. We saw this last week. We are His workmanship. We are a new creation. We do good works to show the world what God is like. We let His glory flow through us. We are glorious and beautiful because of what the gospel is doing in our lives. And our righteous life together shows the world around us how the gospel creates unity in a people. I'm going to try to conclude with some very practical thoughts about unity. I've heard it said, you probably have too, that we spend most of our energy thinking about national politics that are harder for us to influence, and that we spend almost no time on local politics that are far easier for us to influence. And that's why I'm in a heroic fight right now to maintain our fall leaf collection service in Fairfax County. Perhaps the same could be said of our approach to unity in the church. What if we spent most of our energy on the unity of this local church and far less time, not no time, but far less time watching the fractures and fissures that are happening in the American church? The question is, how do we do that? Two points about what unity is not before I give you some points about how we pursue it. Unity is not uniformity. We can disagree about a lot of things, even non-essential gospel doctrine, without permitting heart divisions. It is possible for you and I to disagree about thousands of things without permitting any division at the heart level. Unity Secondly, is not avoiding hard conversations. That's not how we preserve unity, by just staying away from it. This isn't the extended family Thanksgiving table where we just stay away from hard issues. No, we can talk about hard things. We can talk about sin, about politics, about theology, about whatever. And the reason that can work in the local church is because we're not going anywhere. We've made a loving commitment to one another which allows us to stumble around a little bit as we try to make sense of the world that we're living in. As we try to understand it, we take the gospel and apply it to really difficult things that are happening around us. Unity is not uniformity and it is not avoiding hard conversations. Now, as if this sermon were not complicated enough, here are seven ways that we can pursue (laughs) unity in the local church. Come, and these are going to be fast. Come to the church gathering. The first point is simply come to church. The Spirit knits us together through the shared experience of worship. That's what makes zooming in helpful if you're sick, but completely unhelpful as a substitute to what we're experiencing right now. There is a shared embodied experience that happens in the worship gathering that can happen no other place. Sitting under the same preaching 
singing the same truths together, having God's word read over us in our setting. How is your discipline in coming to church every week? In every Cherrydale Explored, I encourage the new members to think, not for the sake of legalism, but just think about how many weeks you actually miss this year. It's surprising with vacations and work travel and seeing families out of town, you might be surprised at how many church services you actually miss. And I'd encourage you to think through church attendance in 2019 versus 2023. Because those years have been really hard on the discipline of showing up for church, not in order to prove your worth to God, but because of the shared experience, the miracle that happens as we gather together to worship our Lord together. Come to church. The rest are quicker. Build relationships. Don't just come to church. Invest relationally in your church. Pursue others and open up to them. Learn from them and help them. There is a train of pain just underneath the surface of every one of our lives. And we tend to think we're the only ones. You're not the only one. Every person sitting around you needs your investment because they're also dealing with a lot of pain. Lean in. Build relationships. Number three, take the risk to speak the truth in love. Don't shrink back from each other. If someone is caught in a sinful pattern or if they're just thinking wrongly about the Bible, take the risk to come to them humbly and to ask questions and to have a difficult conversation. Number four, pay attention to slow relational fades. Pay attention. I was sitting in the elder meeting last week and overwhelmed by the amount of spiritual need. It is impossible for 12 elders to shepherd one church family. Every one of us needs to be thinking on our toes about the people around us and need to pursue one another. Two months ago, three of you came to me on the same Sunday morning and asked me about the same member that you hadn't seen in a while. The next day, Greg O'Dell heard from a member who was asking about the same member. Four of you on one Sunday noticed someone was missing. That's it. That's the kind of intentionality that we need if we're going to finish the race together. Number five, leave room for one another's conscience on non-essentials. Don't smother one another on things that the Bible gives us room to think differently about. There is good gospel freedom in that. When the Bible is clear, we're clear. When the Bible lacks clarity, give one another room for the conscience to be on display. Number six, don't confuse, this one's important, don't confuse your church family with your social media feed. Don't do it. We're not as polarized as Christian Twitter or Christian X, whatever it's called these days. Don't assume that Christians in your church are as far away from you as people on your social media feed might be. Don't assume that. Build relationships so that you know what's happening in the lives of your church family. Pick up the phone the next time you're tempted to scroll. Number seven, pick up the phone for a phone call the next time you're tempted to scroll. <laughs> Last one, pray. Pray with and pray for your church. Jesus prayed for our unity in John 17. Let's join him in this prayer. John 17, 21. I'm praying that they may all be one. Those who hear about you because of the testimony of the 12, the disciples. That's us. 
that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Commit to pray for your church family, maybe particularly on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, alone or come to the prayer meeting at 8.30. Pray with and for your church as a way to pursue unity. Our committed love for one another proclaims the gospel's unifying power. Our commitment to one another, our committed love, not fair weather love, but committed love, and we're going to need it over the next two years. Our committed love for one another proclaims the gospel's unifying power to the world. It's confounding because we don't look alike and we don't have the same interests. What unites the people in this room is the gospel that we believe and hold to. We are united on the core thing, on the main thing. And in a world full of division and rancor and tribalism, this is confounding to the degree that we hold on to it. So let's pray. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes and let's live a unified life together as His people. Father, we thank You for Your Word, Your truth. We thank You for this passage, though it's thick, it's rewarding, and I pray that you would strengthen us according to your truth, that you would help us to see the precious truth that we, Jew and Gentile alike, are gathered together, not because of our merit, not because of our work, not because of our righteousness, but because Jesus Christ, your Son, is our peace. We pray these things in his name. Amen.